Chapter 6 of Cut by the County, or Grace Darnell, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Life-stifling fear stole stifling shame. Grace spent the day in apprehension, expecting some sign from her betrothed, a letter delivered secretly, a messenger asking to see her, some token that he was near at hand and had come to that neighborhood on her account. As the day wore on without bringing any such token, her fears and perplexities increased rather than diminished. She thought that he was lying somewhere, under a hedge or to leeward of a haystack, perhaps, too ill, too weak to crawl to a better shelter, helpless, penniless, friendless, sick and dying, while she who had sworn to love and cherish him was lolling in a luxurious easy-chair, beside the bright hearth in her dainty little den, surrounded by hothouse flowers and new books and an erard piano, and all the best and prettiest things that money can buy. Her generous, tender heart, the heart which grieves even for slaughtered foxes, was sorely tortured by the picture of this destitution, by the bitter contrast between her fate and his. It was not because she loved him that she was so sad for his sake. She no longer loved him, that foolish romantic fancy of hers, born of the idleness of a schoolgirl's life in a strange land, that childish dream had died long ago. For nearly a year past, that secret engagement had been a terror and a burden for her. She had longed ardently for some way of escape. She prayed that her godfather might succeed in undoing the knot she had tied for herself. Yet she could not put away the vision of that pale face, those haggard eyes and hollow cheeks, a face which to her troubled imagination seemed like the image of death itself. All through the long afternoon she sat in her own room, expectant, anxious, much too anxious to employ herself in any way, trembling at every footstep in the corridor lest it should announce a messenger from Kamalak. Five, six, seven o'clock struck from her little timepiece, and still there was no news. She had not gone down to the afternoon tea, shrinking from the sight of her father and Lady Darnall, but she knew that she must go down to dinner or else excite everybody's wonder. She was not the kind of girl to take to her bed after an early run with the hounds. So she dressed and went down to the drawing-room, and went in to dinner with the rest of the family, and sat in torture all dinner-time, expecting, every time a footman approached her, that he was coming to deliver some mysterious message. But the dinner came to an end, and no such message reached her. Sir Alan began to yawn directly they got back to the drawing-room. He had been up to London and back the day before. He had been in the saddle at half-past four that morning. The colonel and Grace yawned in concert. It was a chorus of stifled yawns. "'If you hunting people are so sleepy, you had really better go to bed,' exclaimed Dora irritably. She was one of those objectionable persons who were never sleepy. She was in the habit of playing classical music to the family of an evening, and liked her people to listen and admire. "'Dora is right,' said Sir Alan. "'I am only a nuisance here, so I'll say good night.' The colonel and Grace followed suit. Lady Darnall said she had some letters to write, and she would go to her own room to write them. She knew that even when he was sleeping, her husband liked her to be near him, and her pretty morning room adjoined his bedroom. "'You won't mind me deserting you, will you, Dora?' she asked sweetly, knowing that Miss Darnall detested early hours. Dora replied in her blandest tones. She could amuse herself for an hour or two with Beethoven if the noise of the piano would not disturb them upstairs. "'We shall not hear it, but it would be very nice if we did,' said Lady Darnall. They all went away, and Dora had the spacious drawing-room all to herself. It was brightened by a glowing fire of coal and logs, and by the light of lamps under coloured shades, and it was beautified by masses of hothouse bloom and great mahalika jars of blue and yellow and dull Indian red. It was, in all respects, as delightful a room as the heart of a woman could desire, and yet its spaciousness gave an idea of desolation and abandonment when only one person was left in occupation. Dora began a rondo of Beethoven's, but she played listlessly, without fire, without expression, and before she had played three pages her fingers were lying idle on the keys as the player sunk into a deep reverie. She was roused from her thoughtful abstraction by a sound on the terrace outside, a sound that seemed like the tread of feet upon the gravel. She ran to one of the windows and lifted the edge of the blind, and looked out into the darkness, with her face close against the glass. The night was pitchy dark, she could see nothing. Then she opened the casement and listened intently for some minutes, but there was no recurrence of the sound which had startled her. Still, she was not satisfied. She rang for a servant and told him to go out upon the terrace and see if there was anyone looking about. I certainly heard footsteps, she said, about ten minutes ago. 
The footman had a faintly incredulous air, though he was too well-bred to express his unbelief. He went into the hall, slowly and laboriously withdrew the bolts of the great door, strolled out upon the terrace, and walked about three yards in each direction. The night was so dark that a regiment might have been in ambush at either side of the terrace, and the footman would have been none the wiser. He came back to the drawing-room, and assured Miss Darnall that there was not a mortal on the terrace or in the Italian garden, and then he went back to the servants' hall and enlarged upon Miss Darnall's fidgety, prying ways and love of late hours while he finished his supper. "'I suppose she'll keep me hanging about till half after eleven before I can take those lamps away,' he grumbled. It was nearly eleven, and Sir Alan had not yet gone to bed. He had taken off his coat and put on a loose velvet jacket and was smoking a cigarette in his wife's morning-room. He had always enjoyed being alone with her, always had something particular to say to her, some scheme or arrangement to discuss. He never knew weariness in her society, and even tonight, tired as he was, he was loath to go to bed without the customary talk. Since yesterday, his mind had been full of the Italian trip. "'And you are glad to go away with me,' he said. "'Very, very glad. More glad than I can say.' "'In that case, you ought not to have waited for the doctor's orders. Directly you felt a yearning for a change of scene, you ought to have told me to take you away. I could not be so selfish, Alan, knowing how fond you are of Darnall. I am fond of no place in which you are not happy. I have been very happy here, with you. Yes, you have been, at first, perhaps. You were happy here, and so was I, completely happy in the beginning of a new life. But you have not been happy lately, Claire.' There has been something weighing on your mind, and I have a shrewd suspicion that it is the polar atmosphere of Darnall that has been freezing my darling's tender heart. Oh, Alan, how can you think me so weak? What other society can I want when I have you? But Sir Alan had made up his mind on the subject. Women are sensitive upon small matters, he said. Never mind, my dear, we shall be far away from the people who have slighted you, next week beside the blue waters of the Mediterranean. The money is ready there in that cabinet, four hundred in circular notes, and we can have plenty more when that is spent. Our Italian tour will be like a second honeymoon, and it shall be a long honeymoon. He opened the cabinet while he was talking, and pulled out a drawer inside. It was an old Italian cabinet in ebony and ivory, full of curious little drawers and recesses. From one of the drawers, Sir Alan took out the bundle of banknotes, and looked at them and fingered them like a child with a new toy, longing to be off and away, scattering those notes at hotels and in the smart little shops of gay continental watering places. He meant this journey for his second wife to be one of delight for them both, for her the delight of strange places and lovely scenery, for him the rapture of seeing her happiness. He had written to an old clubhouse chum to secure a good courier. Lady Darnall would take her maid and he his faithful old valet. Grace was young enough to shift for herself. He put the notes back into the open drawer and took the revolvers from one of the recesses. They were packed in a neat little Russia leather case. He opened it and took out the pistols and descanted upon their beauty. "'They are the prettiest things I have seen for an age,' he said." "'I hope you may have no occasion to use them,' Alan answered his wife, averting her eyes with a look of fear. "'You don't like to see them in my hand?' "'I have a horror of all firearms.' "'My dearest, I forgot,' he cried, putting the revolver which he had been examining back into its case. He felt angry with himself for talking of the wretched thing, remembering that dark chapter in Claire's life in which a gun had done such dreadful work. His cigarette was finished by this time. He bent down to kiss his wife as she sat at the writing-table. "'You will not stay up too late, dear,' he said." No, I have only a couple of letters to write, one to the dear old vicar to tell him of our change of plan. He was to come to us for a week before Christmas, don't you know? Of course, he must come to us next May instead. He went out of the bedroom, which opened out of the sanctum of Lady Darnall's, and left his wife bending over her desk in the light of the reading lamp. There was a large fire in the old-fashioned basket grate, such a fire as a well-trained servant always makes on a mild evening as if it were required to roast an ox, or at least a baron of beef. On coming into the room, just now, Lady Darnall's first impulse had been to open one of the windows. They were French casement windows, opening onto a broad wooden balcony, which was always well furnished with flowers, summer and winter. At this season, there were boxes of mignonette among the autumn flowers, and the perfume floated into the room on the cool night air. 
Sir Alan left the pistol case open upon the centre table, amongst a litter of magazines and newspapers. He had been too well-weighted on all his life to have acquired the habit of putting things away. He left everything to be cared for by that inferior race whose duty it is to follow in the footsteps of a grand seigneur and to protect his property from the consequence of his own carelessness. When her husband was gone, Claire Darnell looked up at the clock on the mantelpiece. It was five minutes past eleven. She could hear doors being shut upon the ground floor, all the sounds of a household retiring for the night. "'I can take an hour before midnight,' she said to herself, as she began the letter to the friend of her childhood, that one trusted friend from whom she had no secrets. She had not been writing ten minutes when the window which had been left ajar was slowly pushed open, and a man stepped noiselessly into the room. She heard no footfall on the velvet pile, but went on writing, calm, beautiful in the lamplight, an image of domestic peace, the firelight shining on the dark folds of her satin gown. For some moments she wrote on, while the man stood watching her, holding his breath. Then she heard his breathing, short and quick like a dog's. She looked up in sudden fear and saw a tall, wasted figure in a worn-out velveteen coat, a haggard face looking down at her. It was her husband's face, as she had seen it many a time after dissipated habits had ruined his health. It was her son's face, aged by seven years' apprenticeship since she had last looked upon those features. It was the face of the man whom Colonel Stukely and Grace had seen on the common. "'Valentine,' she ejaculated in a half-whisper, wringing her hands. "'How can you come here, like a thief in the night?' "'How else can I come? It is the only fashion in which I am allowed to enter my mother's house.' "'It is not my house. It is Sir Alan's house, and you have no right to enter it without his permission.' Oh my god, what has come to you? How have you fallen into this despicable state after the sums of money that I have sent you? Tens and twenties dribbled out at odd times and seasons, answered her son, sulkily. Money given in that fashion it never does a man much good. I wanted capital to start in a new line. I had all manner of golden opportunities if you would have helped me as I wanted you to help me at the right moment. But it was always the same story. You feared to trust me with a large sum of money. You, Lady Darnell, mistress of this house, talked of five hundred pounds as if it were half a million— you knew my disposition too well, the usual preachment. You would send me twenty pounds a month, and I must contrive to live respectably on it. Do you think in this go-ahead age a man can get a fair start in life upon a capital of five pounds? I sent you fifties and hundreds for your debts. Yes, when I was on the brink of dangers that would have brought disgrace upon you and your swell husband. Valentine, how have you come to such a pass? asked his mother, waving aside his reproaches which were not new to her. You look like a beggar. I look like what I am, he answered sullenly. I have had a run of bad luck. Cards, horses, everything has gone wrong with me. Other men, cads with half my brains, can win fortunes. I, with three times their education, only risk my wretched pittance to lose it. Do you think a man of my temper could be content to live upon five pounds week while there was a gaming table or race course in the world on which he could try to quadruple it? A gambler, Valentine, another of your father's vices. What else do I inherit from him? Not money or position, and your d cleverness deprived me of even his name. I am always being asked, to what stewards I belong? What accounts can I give of myself, do you think? I would rather have been free to answer, I am Valentine Mackenzie, the son of the man who drank himself mad and shot the sentry at Mallow. You are cruel to the last degree, cruel to reduce yourself to this degraded position, cruel to creep into this house, cruel to me now as you were cruel when you were a boy, as your father was before you, said Claire Darnell beside herself with the agony of her fears. You have no right in this house, where there are only good people, people who fear God and respect themselves. You do neither. I say you have no right here. And I tell you that wherever my mother is, I have a right to be. I suppose you have kept my existence a secret. Your swell husband does not even know that there is such a person, but by heaven he shall know. He spoke in a hoarse, muffled voice, which grew louder with his indignation against fate and his mother. At any moment, that sound of voices might awaken Sir Alan in the next room. Claire hurried to the door of communication. It was shut. She drew across a velvet curtain which draped the drawer, and which would help to keep out the sound of those agitated voices. He knows that I had a son, she said, but when I married him, I believed that you were dead, and that you had been lost in the Earl King. 
Although the happiness of my life depended upon that marriage, I would not have married him if I had known you were living. No, by heaven, I loved him too well to bring such a curse upon him as a stepson with your vices. Well, he has me and my vices, and he and you had better make the best of me. What are you going to do for me, mother? The tender name was uttered with a cynical laugh. What can I do? If I give you money, you will throw it away on a race course or at a gambling table. Whatever I do for you, it all comes to the same thing. You will drink, squander, and degrade yourself to the condition in which you come to me tonight, the condition of a beggar. Because you never give me enough money. Give me a round sum, three or four hundred pounds, for instance. That would start me in a new country. How often have you talked of starting afresh, promised to begin a new life, questioned his mother bitterly. I gave you a hundred pounds to furnish an apartment in Paris. You were to study art, and you were to live as other students live there, cheaply, unpretentiously, till you could earn your own maintenance. For a few months, things seemed to be going well with you. I hoped you were living comfortably on the twenty pounds a month which I sent to you. Then came a long story of difficulties, debts of honour, a mysterious entanglement which might lead to exposure in the newspapers, and I had to send another hundred pounds. You have drained me of the income my generous husband settled on me, and which I told him was three times too much for my wants. I have been sneered at, talked about, for spending so little money, for dressing less handsomely than other women in my position dress. You look an object of compassion at this moment, said her son, surveying her with a diabolical sneer. Her plainly made black satin dinner gown, becoming in its severe simplicity, seemed to him the height of luxury. It was not for him to know that the gown had been worn two winters. Men of his stamp always think a woman is well enough dressed so long as her gown holds together. The wives of such men are supposed to have no right of complaint while their clothes are wind and weatherproof. Lady Darnell took her portemonnaie from her pocket. Here are six sovereigns and some silver, Valentine, she said, offering him the contents. All I have in the world, or am likely to have until Christmas. He took the money carelessly, indifferently. It will do very little good, he said, beyond getting me a week's lodging, a slop suit in which I shall look a little worse than in these rags. I tell you that what I want, the only thing that can do me any good, is a round sum of money. I know of a splendid opening. A friend of mine owns a vineyard near Cadiz. It only wants working to produce as fine a sherry as the best that is made in the district, and he would take me into partnership if I could give him three or four hundred on the nail, and could pledge myself to produce as much more a year hence. That would mean, not a beggarly pittance, but a trade, a fortune. You would not be ashamed to own a wholesale dealer in Spanish wines for your son. The trade is reputable, even if the wines are doctored. Come, mother, don't tell me you can't find this money. You have but to ask Sir Alan. I will not ask him. No, Valentine, even if I believed in the possibility of your redemption, I would not ask that generous man to give me more money, when of his own accord he has given me three times too much for all my reasonable requirements. But I have no hope of your reform. I know that if I gave you three hundred pounds tonight it would go just as the other money has gone. The utmost I will do for you, the uttermost that duty constrains me to do, is to provide you with the means of living decently from week to week. That I will do, and no more. And even to do that, I shall have to borrow money. Your demands have completely exhausted my resources. Very good. Then I must have recourse to someone else. There is a lady in this house upon whom my claim is second only to my claim upon you. A lady in this house, repeated Clare, aghast with wonder. Grace Darnell is my affianced wife. I believe a man has some kind of claim upon the woman who has promised to marry him. My stepdaughter, Grace, affianced to you, to you, Valentine Mackenzie? You must be mad to say such a thing. This statement may sound preposterous, but it is true. Miss Darnell took it into her head to work at the Louvre just at the time I was working there. You think very likely that I never did so work, that my art education was altogether a sham, but there you belie me. I worked honestly enough till I got sick of an impossible profession. No matter. I was attracted by the young lady's appearance, was able to pay her some small attention, and saw that she was pleased with me. I contrived to question her duenna. I heard that she was Miss Darnell of Darnell Park, an heiress. The imbroglio became interesting, and I determined to try my chances with Miss Darnell, whom I really admired more than any girl I had seen for an age. What an honour for Grace! I contrived to get upon confidential terms with her, and soon found the key to her heart. 
She is a generous, high-spirited girl, full of romance, just the girl to think the world well lost for love. We were desperately in love with each other, a sharp attack of, of, an old complaint of mine brought me to death's door. Was it your father's malady, the dire disease that comes from intemperance, Valentine? asked his mother, looking at him intensely, seeing only too plainly in his haggard face the same indications which she had seen so often in the face of her dead husband. No matter what it was, I wrote to Miss Darnell from my sick bed. She answered as a true-hearted girl might be expected to answer. She promised to be my wife. I have that promise under her own hand. She will be of age in a year, and as soon as she is of age and her own mistress, I shall claim the fulfillment of that promise. Does she know who you are? Well, not exactly. When you are in Rome, do as the Romans do, says the proverb. When I was in Paris, I was a Frenchman. One alias is as good as another. In Paris, I was not Valentine Stuart, but Victor de Comloc. And you come to this house, an adventurer, an impostor, a swindler, to claim the promise made by a credulous girl, your dupe and victim. You, my son, would do this thing. This is the deepest disgrace you have threatened me with yet. It is for you to work out the problem so as to avoid disgrace. Give me three or four hundred pounds, and I will start for Cadiz tomorrow, to return a year hence as a respectable merchant and to claim my betrothed. She will pardon my change of name and nationality if I can stand before her as a gentleman and your son. She is so fond of you that the relationship will be an additional claim to her regard. Do not think that I will ever sanction any engagement between you and Grace. Not if you could struggle out of the abyss into which your degrading habits have sunk you, not even if you could come here in outward seeming a gentleman. Never would I sanction the union of that good and true-hearted girl with your father's son. The cup of despair which I drained to the dregs shall never be offered to her while I have the power to prevent that infamy. Sir Alan knows what you are as a boy. If the worst come to the worst, he shall know what you are as a man. Wouldn't it be wiser for your own sake if you were to temporize? Let me go to Spain, work out my own redemption, and return worthy of grace, and of you? I will do it, mother, if you will trust me. He laid his hand upon his mother's shoulder. He looked at her pleadingly as she stood with clasped hands, an image of despair. It was the first time that he had touched her since they entered. He, the son whom she had not seen for seven years. I cannot trust you, she answered, not in unkindness, but in despair. I have been too often deceived. I know your nature too well. I will do what I can for you, but it must be in my own way. Oh, Valentine, why do you follow in the fatal road that your father trod to his doom? The habits of the drunkard and the gambler ruined him, and they will ruin you if you do not reform. Think of his dreadful end, a murderer, a lunatic. Be warned in time. No, my poor son, it is not yet too late. I will help you. I will visit you, befriend you in every way, if you will only show a real purpose of amendment. And now, for pity's sake, leave this house before Sir Alan overhears anything. Are you lodging in the village? I have been lodging under hedges and haystacks since yesterday evening. When I landed at Newhaven yesterday morning, I had just enough to pay for a third-class ticket to Scadley. I have been roaming about ever since with empty pockets and an empty stomach, watching for a chance of an interview with you or Grace. Thank God you did not see Grace in this dreadful plight. Poor creature, poor unhappy boy, said Lady Darnell, glancing at the clock. Ten minutes to twelve. They will hardly have gone to bed at the coach and horses, for they seldom close until after eleven. You had better go there and get a room for the night. There is a sheltered lane at the back of the inn garden, a narrow lane with tall hedges. I will meet you there at seven tomorrow morning, and we can talk quietly. We can make some plan for your future. And now, go. There is not a moment to be lost if you want to get shelter tonight. I don't want to sleep under a hedge, he said sullenly, moving slowly toward the window, reluctant, undecided. At this moment, the door leading to the corridor was opened a little way, and a sweet girlish voice said, Mother, are you still up? Lady Darnell rushed to the door and met Grace before she could enter the room. Yes, dear child, she said, going out into the corridor and shutting the door behind her. Oh, Grace, why are you not in bed? It is close upon midnight, and you were up at four. I couldn't sleep a wink if I went to bed. Mayn't I come into your room for a few minutes' chat? Not tonight, it is too late. How pale you are, mother. Are you ill? No, no, not ill, only a little tired. I have sat up too long. Now, Grace, I shall take you back to your room, and you must go to bed instantly. 
The girl was in her dressing gown, her splendid brown hair hanging loose upon her shoulders. Lady Darnall put her arm around her and led her along the corridor. Grace's and the visitors' rooms were at the end of the house, just beyond those inhabited by Sir Alan and Lady Darnall. These three had exclusive occupation of this southern wing. The central portion of the first floor was taken up by a picture gallery and a billiard room. Miss Darnall's rooms were in the northern wing. "'What has made you so wakeful, Gracie?' asked Claire when she had taken the girl back to her room. Grace hesitated for a few moments, looking at the ground and playing nervously with the lace frilling of her dressing gown. She was longing to tell all her troubles to her stepmother, yet dared not. Fear of her father's anger kept her dumb. "'Oh, I don't know,' she said. "'Perhaps it was the exciting idea of our Italian tour. At any rate, I couldn't sleep, and I thought if you were up I should like to have a talk. But you are too tired, and you ought to go to bed. You are as white as a ghost.' "'Yes, I am very tired. Good night, dear child.' "'Good night, mother.' And with an affectionate kiss, they parted. Lady Darnall did not go back to her room immediately. She wanted time, first, to be sure that Grace did not follow her, secondly, to recover her coolness of brain, to consider quietly and calmly, if possible, what was to be done with this foolish son of hers. He would have gone when she went back to her room, perhaps, or, if he had not gone, she would be better able to reason with him after a few minutes' quiet. She walked up and down the corridor two or three times, thinking deeply, trying to hit upon some line of conduct which might save Grace and reclaim the prodigal. Grace must on no account know that her lover was in the neighborhood. Girls are so foolish. His wretched condition would appeal to her pity. There is no knowing into what foolishness she might be entrapped. The stable clock and the church clock struck twelve, the last with silvery solemn tone, heard from afar across the elms and oaks, the dells and slopes where the cattle were lying at rest. Lady Darnall took one turn more. Hark, what can that be? No doubt as to what it was, the report of a pistol. What it meant was another thing. For a moment or so, Claire Darnall stood motionless with terror. Then there came the thud of a heavy fall. "'It is in my room,' cried Claire, beside herself with apprehension, remembering the revolvers in their case on the table, the open case with dark red velvet lining glowing the lamplight. She had looked at it absently while Valentine was talking to her, looked at it with mind so abstracted as never to consider how fatal a thing a revolver may be. "'He has killed himself,' she cried distractedly. She rushed to her room, tearing at the door with convulsive hands, which made the mere turning of the handle seem a work of time and difficulty.' She expected to see her reprobate son stretched upon the floor and weltering in his blood. She knew not that a worse evil had befallen her. She went into the room. The casement was wide open, and the night wind was blowing in, scattering the papers on her writing table. The doorway leading into the bedroom was open, the velvet portiere pulled aside, and Alan Darnall was lying across the threshold, bleeding, dead as his wife thought, in the supreme agony of that moment. While she stood looking at him with clasped hands, his daughter rushed into the room and saw what had happened. End of chapter 6